Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Sunday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. Today, we have our Sunday SEC postgame conversation, but it is with Chase Parham filling in for Weldon Rodenberg, who was at the Saints game today. We're actually going to get Weldon on on Monday night for a Tuesday show, which will be a little different than usual. So Chase filling in, we talked about, of course, Ole Miss's 37-20 to 20 win over Tulane. The good, the bad, the offensive line issues, Ole Miss finding a way to win, Jackson Dart's performance, getting key guys back healthy already this early in the season, and a whole lot more. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to take a quick break to remind you. The podcast is brought to you by Seaspire. Time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with Seaspire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99% uptime. Seaspire also provides prides themselves with the best customer service in the in-home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local, based out of the Southeast with industry low-call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and the Southern Alabama region. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle, but not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys Call or go online to cspire.com slash home today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, at checkout for one month of free service. So if you're signing up for internet right now just for listening to this podcast, you get your first month free just by typing in that promo code RIPPY. Check them out, Cspire, customer inspired. Podcast is also brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit will sleep eight comfortably. It's gated. It offers amenities such as tennis courts a spa, a pool, and it's right there less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus off of Old Taylor Road. Please go take advantage of this deal. The Vandy football weekend is still available. Everything else football weekend is booked up, but Vandy football weekend is still available. And then, of course, any other time, Thanksgiving holidays, maybe coming up for basketball games this year. Go ahead and book your stay at rentthesipoxford.com right there off Old Taylor Road. Bracken Ray, great guy, friend of the pod, would not steer you the wrong way. It can be tough to find a place to stay on busy weekends in Oxford. Maybe you don't want to deal with the hotel and get a more at-home feeling environment. This is exactly what you're getting in rentthesipoxford.com. Check out their Turnberry unit today. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com and check availabilities. And then when you check out, use the promo code RIPPYWRITES for 100 bucks off any two-night minimum. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com, a great place to stay, a tremendous location that you should take advantage of today. All right, here's Chase, who was down in New Orleans covering the game on the win and the reaction to it. All right, filling in in the co-host chair for Weldon Rodenberg, who went to the Saints game, is the only person I don't know that didn't, that I know didn't go to the Saints game, I should say. Chase Parham, he's back from New Orleans, he went down there and covered Ole Miss's 37-20 to win over Tulane. Opted out of the Saints game this morning, but uh, made it back in one piece. Yeah, you know, it, it's when you it's, it's when you know you're probably an adult. Had several things going on that required attention. Uh, it, it, it sucked, but it is what it is. Yeah, I, I've had several people today kind of look at me like, hold on a minute, what? And I'm like, I, I know, like, I, I get, like, the fandom and whatever, but life gets in the way sometimes, all good. Um, you know, and – it allowed me to kind of get some stuff done today and think about Ole Miss a little more. Is that that game yesterday incredibly strange? Because I said this in the post game with Neil, I wrote it a little bit. It was the perfect game, depending on whatever your mood is or whatever it is you want to think 
you can find that. If you want to go, hey, you know what? They got all these problems and that wasn't good. And they, there's all this stuff that's not going to let them meet expectations. That's all right there. That's all well and good. That's cool. And then the other side of it is if you want to go, hey, they really found some things. And I'll tell you why. And if they can get healthy, that's all cool, too. You know, it, it's it's where... I was sitting there. I was sitting there, and you, you get this. You've done this uh, in, in the in the press box writing, and you know we're not on deadline much anymore, really at all. It could have taken me as long as it needed to, but I'm still ingrained to try to write during the game and keep up with it and, and write the way a newspaper person would write. And I had four different stories going at one time yesterday. I had a loss, a win, and then I had a couple different versions of both, depending on sort of how it went. Um, I knew that Tulane's press area was going to be bad. I knew that it was going to take me a while to get interviewed. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get going. And I guess my point is of all that is I feel like that really shows what that game was like, is it wasn't even simply win or loss. It was win or loss with what connotation gets put on it at that point. And I couldn't make my mind up. I kept kind of going in circles, even trying to convince myself of what I really thought about the entirety of the game yesterday. Yeah, the whole writing like you're still on a newspaper deadline is an effective exercise just for how you think the game's going to go versus maybe what changed late, other than the fact that, you know, you erase it, which people used to complain about, which not really a valid complaint anymore. But it's useful just to do it during the game because it helps you kind of make mental notes of what's going on in real time and things to ask when you do go down there. And you're right. There was a lot there, right? You could do the whole, well, their offensive line stinks. They can't run the football. They don't trust their younger guys. This team has all kinds of problems. Or you could say they got popped in the mouth and then came back and outscored a ranked team 27 to three in the second half for a three score victory on the road against the reigning Cotton Bowl champions. There's just a lot of different ways you could go with it. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And we will get to this toward the end. But if you're debating between the houses on fire side, which is probably not the most valid position to take, considering they did win the game by three scores, and that is the point of this whole thing is to win the games, versus the completely Pollyanna view of how they're fine, is it affected at all by the fact that everyone else in their division, at least to this point, with Mississippi State not really withstanding, even though they did struggle with Arizona, doesn't look like world beaters at all. LSU's got some problems. Alabama looked very bad yesterday. And again, we'll get to those at the end. But does that affect your view of this team at all? I'm trying to look at Ole Miss in a bubble and, and not look at it that way. But just simply because I don't know that Alabama losing to Texas yesterday automatically makes you go, okay, Ole Miss is beating Alabama. Now, look, it makes Alabama much more susceptible. It makes Alabama gettable. That is absolutely a game in two weeks Ole Miss can win. There's no doubt about that. You see that LSU is very susceptible in different ways and things Florida State did. Now, can Ole Miss replicate all those? I don't know. Um, I have Ole Miss a favorite over Arkansas and Auburn, the way those games went yesterday. Arkansas played with its food, looked like crap against Kent State, and then Auburn was basically the first team in the history of college football to have the stats they did and win a football game, especially on the road last night. Just the luckiest thing in the world out in Berkeley. So – Sure. But I, I guess my point is, you know, it's almost kind of like a golf deal. If you've got a bad swing going and you're making a bunch of bogeys, even if you finish top 10, that's probably says more about everybody else than you. I feel like right. Ole Miss is that golfer right now where they just need to take care of their own business. What what what, what, it, what it is about Ole Miss that is, and I'm not trying not to bury the lead here because you can bounce me wherever you want to bounce me, is I just think they have to get healthy. It's the injuries that already are piling up in ways that I look at this and go, okay, for them to be peak efficiency in the way they need to be to beat Alabama, LSU, Arkansas, to really put one of those runs together that makes them hit ceilings and do the things that you think is or at least possible with this team. 
they've got to they, they've got to stay healthy. They've got to find certain things to to make to make these deficiencies less so because you know it even baffled Lane yesterday. He he gave a very honest answer. He was asked about Trey Harris going out of the game after three plays. Trey catches two passes, including the 31-yard touchdown, and then gets hurt, and he's gone the rest of the day. It, it does not appear like he's going to play against Georgia Tech, but that's based off some level of sourcing plus some speculation, so don't hold me to that. But that's here on September the 10th as we record this. Um, it affected everything. Lane said, I, I don't really understand why and how. It doesn't make sense, but it did. You could see that it bogged things down. You can see that it changed things. You can see that things were not the same after that happened. Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin's offense does not work as effectively without a very, very gettable or usable tight end. There's no doubt about that. Now, look, I thought Michael Trigg looked better in the second half yesterday than he has looked maybe at any point in an Ole Miss uniform outside of beating up on Central Arkansas for three touchdowns in that game uh, last season to to start his career, essentially. But getting pre-scoring back healthy, whatever this is with Trey Harris, if he's out for any length of time, absolutely whatever's going on with Sakari Franklin. We don't know where that's standing right now. He's still rehabbing the knee scope that he suffered uh, in the preseason or in fall camp or even before fall camp. They've got to get one of these guys to be a playmaker because they just are limited on offense with the options that they have currently because you're counting on Triggs showing up every day and being the tight end you know he can be. I mean, okay, it's possible, but – that, that, that's probably a losing proposition if you're just throwing all of your money on that right now. Um, you know, Kyron Heath didn't play many snaps at all yesterday. Jordan Watkins and Dayton Wade are really good number two wide receivers in an SEC offense. There's no doubt about that. Dayton Wade saved them yesterday. He goes over for a, over 100 yards. He catches seven balls. He was spectacular yesterday. Dayton Wade had a hell of a day. Can Dayton Wade do that game in and game out, especially if they start bracketing it all and you don't have a tight end? It's going to be tough sledding. It's hard to do. And then that's not counting the fact that they don't really know what's going on with the offensive line right now. They averaged fewer than three yards per rush yesterday. Quinshawn Judkins, he has rushes of 12 and nine and still averaged fewer than three yards a carry. He had 18 rushes for 48 yards yesterday for uh, for the afternoon. He's a downhill runner, and when you can't get any push and you can't give him any room to run, there's no way to get downhill. They're not protecting Dart overly well and then I don't know that they even absolutely can figure out what this is supposed to look like I mean you look at the snap counts those are up at rebelgrove.com I put them up this morning Jaden Williams barely played yesterday they went with Victor Kern and Quincy McGee for pretty much the entire game it just feels like offensively and we'll get to defense in a minute but I feel like from an offense standpoint they have so many questions that are not about overall talent they're not about scheme they're not about anything that's necessarily a problem as long as they have the right players on the field but when you're looking through this team and through the lens, we all knew Quinshawn Judkins was 1A. We all knew he was the guy and he's the bell cow and all that stuff. But beyond him, coming into the season, or even let's take this step back, in the spring practice, who did we think were the next level of people who were going to carry the rock and be the guys to really impact this offense? Chris Marshall, Sakari Franklin, Trey Harris, Caden Priestcorn. They're all injured. All unavailable. Yeah, none of them were available for that game on Saturday. So this is a really long-winded of me saying, I thought that they showed a lot of flashes to get past a two-lane team that, again, didn't have Michael Pratt. I'll get I'll get to it in a second while I think that's very relevant to the conversation we're having as well as the actual game. But Ole Miss is down a lot of dudes and around down the dudes that – can make this offense go. So they've got to get somebody back. They're, they, they, you know, they look, they're going to beat Georgia Tech. They're 21 and a half point favorites against the Yellow Jackets next week. But 
for this next stretch to go like they need it to go, I, I feel like at least one injury has got to come back. Preescorn's got to get healthy. They've got to block a little better. They just need bodies. And I feel like until they get the bodies, it, it's more about survival than style points or credit or anything along those lines. And that's something I thought about this morning, too, is you usually don't really think about a team having injury issues the second week of the season, particularly when they played an FCS opponent in week one. But you're right. Ole Miss was probably a little bit more injured than maybe we gave it credit for. And I just say we collectively, myself included. And it's not only it's not the sheer fact that if if they did do an injury report, which would be just wishful thinking uh, at the college level, but it's not the fact that it's you know two pages long or you got to keep going down the list to figure out you know how many guys total are hurt. It's the it's the it's who's hurt and at what position. You mentioned the tight end uh, being crucial to not only just having giving Jackson Dart a pass catching option, but very critical in the running game. I think that's a big piece of why they struggled yesterday, and it's also. Um, the receiving aspect. And we're so that leads me, I guess, to my next question. You brought up an interesting point. I saw Kiffin say this in the press conference as well, that he was surprised how much things got bogged down when Trey Harris went out. Were you surprised at him being surprised? Because naturally, wouldn't that really make sense? He's their only number one guy. They aren't particularly deep at receiver. As you mentioned earlier, Dayton Wade was awesome yesterday. Jordan Watkins is a very good number two receiver. But given that you didn't think you were deep at that going in, you're already down a pass catching option at tight end. It would make sense as to why that would be slowed down very much. I was surprised that he was surprised, if that makes any sense. I took it as he was aware that they were playing Tulane. Tulane's defensive talent is up front. The defensive line's pretty good. I mean, I don't know that it's SEC quality from an eight deep standpoint, but they're they're more than competent on the defensive front. They caused Ole Miss a lot of problems. You saw that. It, it was a that, that was the biggest wake-up call is what Tulane was able to do with four – with basically four down linemen against Ole Miss's offensive line yesterday. But Tulane was missing their top linebacker. They have a secondary that's tons of new players, guys that are that are not from that Cotton Bowl team necessarily, guys who did not play huge roles on that Cotton Bowl team. And when Trey Harris went out, they just abandoned the middle of the field. I mean, I, I'm going to pull the pass depth numbers here when they get kind of updated and checked. People – Pro football focus takes a day or two to completely get those numbers right. They, they they alter them for a day or so. But they just abandoned that. I thought that what he meant, or at least what I took it for, was that Dart had no confidence on anybody filling those zones at all. It wasn't necessarily about one guy doing something. It's that Harris leaving took away an entire portion of the field that they typically thrive in. I mean, Dart really likes the middle of the field. He likes seeing those things. And they simply just couldn't do it. You know, they, 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 they lost that intermediate and deep middle and frankly, never found it. I mean, they hit Dayton, Dayton Wade kind of down the seam there on the ball that he caught one-handed falling backwards and things like that. But they had to find ways to move the ball yesterday without deep middle, without intermediate middle, and without the ability to run the football. Well, that puts a hell of a lot of pressure on Jackson Dart. I mean, you're talking about Dart. You know, I was I was sitting by Michael Katz from the Daily Journal yesterday, and at one point I kind of leaned over and I said, it's it's not like it's no protection and it's the ultimate version of this. But because everything felt so difficult, it just felt like every yard was difficult, every every throw was difficult. Dart was playing backyard football in a way because he was just sort of having to improvise on every play to get things done. And look, he did a hell of a job. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm I, I try not to overdo it every week, but I'm not sure he gets enough credit for that team scoring 30 offensive points yesterday because, I mean, there was not a lot there at times, and he had to use his feet. He had to use receivers and options down line so much. I, I thought 
he had the one really dumb pass that was picked off, and it was a stupid pass. But beyond that, I thought he played a really good football game yesterday. I did too. I was there was people on on the board, uh, you know, asking if if they'd consider a quarterback change coming out after halftime, and I just never really understood that because you know if you compare Darts and Sanders' running numbers from uh, Sanders' time at Oklahoma State, Darts actually a little bit better and more efficient runner than Spencer Sanders. That doesn't mean he's as quick or as mobile. I don't know how the hell you would gauge that by having unless they yeah. do a foot race. But I just didn't I didn't understand what ch- like changing quarterback would just be changed for the sake of change. I'm not sure how it would make anything any better, and that's not really considering the repercussions of what happens if you ever did make a change like that. You know, absent an injury, and then so if you like staying on the pass catching thing for just a second is. I've never I get asked about Franklin all the time. That is one subplot with this team that I just haven't followed from the beginning. I understand he got here and at some point he had some sort of knee scope. But what what is happening there? What what is is there a timeline at all? I know it seemed it's seemingly been kind of a mystery, but wh- where does he stand? Do you expect him to play at all this year? It's look, it's Lane Kiffin. He's not going to give you an exact answer to any of these injury questions. What we were told and what we thought was that it was a four- or five-week recovery from the time of the surgery. If that's the case, it's essentially now. I mean, I okay. he should be back. I mean, now I was told that on Tuesday he practiced and was cutting a little bit and that he was doing far more than he had in previous weeks. So, look, maybe he's back for Alabama next week. He does what Trey Harris has been doing, and while they don't have them both out there on the field at the same time, better than having neither. He, he, yeah, he, he does this, that, that kind of thing, and you don't miss it as much, and they're okay because – we haven't seen Franklin on the field, so we don't know what this looks like with everybody. I mean, you know, look, it's this is the most Pollyanna of Pollyanna statements, and it, it means nothing, and it's a waste of the 10 seconds that I'm using to say it. I do kind of step back and go, God, what if Chris Marshall wasn't a, was, wasn't a shithead? And I they know. had him and Trey Harris and Zachary Franklin. You'd go, wow. They got really good at wide receiver. Like they're, they're they're cooking with gas all of a sudden. But instead, they're 0 for 3 right now on those guys being out there. I think Franklin – Assuming that Priest Corn is on schedule with his foot injury and he is back for Alabama as as expected, as you reported a couple days ago, he's on pace for. It, I think Franklin might be the most important piece on this team because they just have to have some sort of dynamic weapon in the passing game. And if Franklin can give them that, then that's that's that step they need to kind of make everything else work. Without him, they're just a man down. I mean, it just, you know, you're really struggling to to make a lot of short passes, make people miss, to be very efficient. Having Franklin, having Harris, really, when you get them both back later in the year, assuming that happens, they might be a really dynamic, damn good offense. Um, It takes away the margin for error. You get to hit big plays. You get to go downfield. Instead of right now just having to be so efficient where every mistake or every time where you get off schedule, it's just magnified a little more because you don't have that guy that's taking the top off things. And it'll help in the running game, too, as far as pre-scoring. I mean, that's a big 6'5", 250-pound guy who, again, I haven't really seen him play a ton other than just stuff I've seen in small portions at Memphis. But he did tell me on here, he was the first to report, he does like blocking, he likes hitting people, and he said he's gotten pretty good at it as he's learned a new position, being 6'5", 250 helps. So I'll take his word for it for the time being. But that being back, because – Trig plays a little bit of a different position, even though it's the same yeah. position than a Caden Priestcorn. That's going to help a lot because it doesn't sound like at this point that they can consistently rely on Kyron Heath in, in that. And what's crazy to think about it, too, is would it be – I don't even know if I want to say this. Would it be better if they still had Casey Kelly? Because for all his flaws as far as catching the football and things, he was a pretty good blocker. I think his brother went on Twitter a few weeks ago and said he made the running game. Maybe Chad Kelly was vindicated a bit yesterday, but be that as it may, Casey Kelly being here, not being here, they're missing someone to help them in the running game. 
And it's particularly so this year and it's showing up more because they don't know what the hell they're doing on the offensive line. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's clearly some issues in the offensive line and it's not like they played a bunch of guys to figure it out. I mean, you know, John Garrison right now, like it, like it or hate it, he feels like he's got his dues with McGee and Kern and that they played the majority of the snaps. Um, so no, look, tight end's going to help in the run game. Having a more balanced passing attack will help in the run game. Right now, there's not a lot of respect for, you know, a lot of the fakes and different things. You know, a lot of it's RPO. And, and you know, look, maybe Dart's making good decisions. Maybe making, he's making bad decisions. I don't know. I mean, that's the one thing you don't know with this RPO game is once Harris went out, what was available and what wasn't available based off the play in the scheme they were running. And I have no way to know that, especially in real time. But, though, there's – look, it's it's probably okay. Like I said, what I'm, what everything I'm talking about is about two weeks from now and three weeks from now, right? Because I think by the time Arkansas gets here, Trey Harris is probably back, assuming what we're hearing is right, and then Zachary Franklin, barring a setback, is probably back, and Caden Priestcorn is probably back by then. So when Arkansas comes to town, I think they're a damn good team. I think they're a team that's very dynamic. I think offensively they're going to be really, really good. It's what can you do to stave things off and win as many games as possible until then. And that's why I just said, I just feel like one of these guys gives them something when they're just 0 for 3 on having them out there. It, it's just not enough because it's also putting more pressure on Judkins because what's happened for two weeks now is teams have just said, you know what, we're going to make sure we're, we're going to bring an extra guy up, even if it's run blitzes instead of, you know, pass blitzes. They're not bringing the house, but they're doing a lot of run blitzes. They're doing a lot of things like that. They're hoping their defensive line stand up. You're going to try to hit four in the backfield. You're going to try to get him frustrated, get him off his game. And then that challenges, you know, Jackson Dart to find receivers that are not his most talented, not the guys that he was necessarily counting on to be 1A and see if they can do that all the way down the field because we're not going to give up the big play. So he's got to hit four or five passes. He's got to do different things to get into scoring position versus just, hey, like the first drive when they went three plays, 75 yards, and before you could even get your get your nachos ready to eat, that was already 7 nothing Ole Miss. What do you make of the offensive line? And you mentioned they're not, it's not like they're playing a bunch of different guys to try to figure it out. They're sticking with the same guys. I find the left side of it particularly surprising because they're choosing to play two transfers in Victor Kern and Quincy McGee, Quincy McGee and Victor Kern at left tackle and left guard respectively over Eli Acker and Jaden Williams. And Williams is trial by fire last year alongside Micah Pettis with it being a couple freshman tackles. Acker played a bunch in there. Said Melton played a decent bit of football last year, and you haven't really seen him at all. Him not really relevant to this piece of the conversation, but what do you make of them still kind of sticking with the transfers over two guys that were returning players that played a bunch for him last year? They won in Paul Camp, and he's given them every opportunity to jail. I, I think, you know, it's probably what's allowed them to stay in there a little longer, even with struggle, is if Garrison believes in where they are from a talent standpoint, he can convince them se- himself that – they need some time next to each other, that they need to be together, they need to play together, that you got to let that sort of happen and then and then judge it from there based off whatever's going on. You know, maybe he, he thinks that Williams and Acker are some known entity for whatever reason, it just hasn't been good enough for whatever reason. I, I, think, I think he's experimenting in real time. I don't know that I necessarily am taking those snap counts and taking what happened yesterday as, oh, these two dudes are just in the job and they're the two linemen and nothing can change whatsoever. He clearly believes in them, but I think he's also looking at things. I think it was, hey, Tulane's got a pretty good front. Give it a shot right here. Let's see what happens. And he did when things were really scuffling. He put Williams back in for a series or two right there. Now, I think Acker only played one or two game, one or two plays, and it was there at the end on that fourth down. But, um, I, you know, he, he, he gave Williams a couple possessions right there when things were really struggling. 
And I thought, okay, and then nothing seemed to happen. Williams didn't perform well. The line didn't perform well. Again, I'm not good enough to tell you whose fault it was. But it was during the middle of that four straight punts where the offense just simply did nothing by itself. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that they've gone two weeks kind of doing that too. Like it's mostly those two guys, and then when things go bad for a second, they'll throw them in to change it up. And so I do think they'll probably have a little bit more clarity there by the time they play Alabama. I do think he's experimenting in real time, even if a bunch of guys are playing the majority of the snaps. But I think it comes down to what you said. They just won in fall camp, and he's going to give them every opportunity to keep the job. Um what was the crowd like yesterday? Because Ole Miss, they're very good on script. Like, if there ever is a loud crowd, Lane Kiffin is the crowd killer, particularly if they get the football first. They're very good on script. They get up 7 nothing, but Tulane responds immediately. What was was the crowd a factor at all yesterday? I've never been to that stadium. I know next to nothing about it. So, okay, a couple things here. For a little background, the stadium is really good for what Tulane needs 99% of the time. It's a, it's a cool spot on campus. It seats – 30,000 or so. Um, oh, wow. It's got, I would guess more than that. No, it's about 30,000. Both end zones have just sort of high, narrow seats. It's visitor ends on one end, students on the other. It's fine. Serves both purposes. Fine. And non-press box side has a big club area with like an awning and then some individual clubs or suites or something, whatever that looks like over there. Um it is really, really good for Tulane's purposes inside the stadium. The turf is nice. The field's nice. They bought a turf that actually is the same material that the Cowboys have at AT&T Stadium. It's a lot cooler than your normal field turf, and that is needed very much in New Orleans for a lot of the uh, the, the, the summer and early fall. So all that stuff is good. What was a problem yesterday was, A, they were not prepared from a logistical people present standpoint. Not enough people helping people get where they need to go, not enough stuff like that. Concessions were bogged down. It's just not built. It's it's what annoys you about a stadium is that it's not built for its capacity. It's built for like 70% capacity, but it's not built for capacity because there was only one or two entrances and exits into this entire stadium per side. And one of the weirdest, goofiest things was the players for the visiting team exit through the concourse and through one of the exits out toward their area where they dress or their dressing room or whatever. So the game ends. Okay. And and I'll have to explain this to people. So for media, we have a couple choices. We've got to obviously get to the post-game press conference. And on the road, that's pretty fast. Like Lane's ready to get out of there, get moving. So he's going to talk to his team, and then he's immediately to media and then on a plane. Well, because the game was still close so late, we were trying to write as much as possible. We didn't want to go down to the field because we can go down to the field between five and seven minutes left. Right. But that's a lot of dead time where we're not working or doing anything productive. Plus, we had to fight the crowd, too, to get to the field. So I went, that that nah, forget it. I'm going to ride, and then I'll just get out when, as soon as it's over. So the game's ending. We race down the stairs. We get to the concourse. The team is coming through. So they have blocked that entrance. So on both sides, people headed to that exit to leave are just stuck. And it's like a mass humanity. It's thousands of Ole Miss fans, Tulane fans mingled together. Plenty of drunk people that start throwing the insults back and forth. You're not real sure if there might be a fight breakout right there. And we're just stuck. So we wait five, six, seven minutes for Ole Miss to get through the tunnel. And then after that, they still kept that area closed, except for media and players. But we were stuck behind people. We couldn't get there. So then they start telling everybody on both sides, no, go the other way. 
So they're trying to push everybody to the exterior of the stadium on both ends now, and that means turning around and fighting against traffic that's unaware of what was going on. It was a cluster, you know what, trying to leave that place for fans, for everybody. It, it was it was not built for that whatsoever. I mean, that if, if they get an F, that's what's that's what the F was because they simply just had no way to clear out. The concourse is really narrow. It's not very wide. There's not a lot of room, and just the ability to exit. I'm frankly a little surprised it's not a fire code kind of deal because if you say you can fit 30,000, you would think you would need the ability to get 30,000 out of the stadium if, if that's so desired for any reason. So no silent count is what you're saying. It was not a factor at all? Tulane was juiced up. Their fans did a really good job. But look, there was a shit ton of Ole Miss people there. I mean, like it was it was a lot of Ole Miss people you could hear Ole Miss's band. You could hear Ole Miss when something good happens. Hotty Toddy was not getting drowned out by the Tulane faithful. I, I can't see under me, so it's hard for me to say what the percentage was. Okay, But my guess is 25% Ole Miss, something like that. And in a 30,000-seat stadium. No, I mean, look, it was a good test, but and we can talk about Tulane if you want, if you don't want to spin forward or back or whatever you want to do. But it was not, a, it was not the big test because of the raucous environment of the crowd. It was because of the team on the other side. We'll get back to Chase in just a second, but I want to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other beverage you've had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorable punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up at any occasion, especially if you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to an unforgettable game day experience. Twisted Tea, the drink that fuels and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked that the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Major Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Can't wait to see the week one college football results from Skybox. Hope you hopped on that and took advantage of it. You can go online today, skyboxsportspicks.com. Check out a picks package in your price range, whether it's college, NFL, still crushing it on Skybox NASCAR. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. Whatever you want to do, I recommend going with the year-long all-access pass. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They'll email you your picks in a color-coded spreadsheet, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. Use the promo code RIPPE, R-I-P-P-E-E, for 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Hopefully you threw something from LB's on the grill this weekend and enjoyed watching Ole Miss win its first game of the season. If you're a Rippy Right subscriber, that's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now it's three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. Just go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you signed up. And then go find all your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of sausages. I like the tri-tips. The filet burgers are delicious. Go find your own favorites at LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Chase. Well, the reason I was going to ask that is, is because Ole Miss gets out to 7-0. Tulane answers it pretty quick. Things really seem to go to hell offensively pretty quickly after that. And there's a point in that game where Tulane's up 17-7 to toward the end of the first half, and Ole Miss had really gotten popped in the mouth. I thought it was very interesting that Jackson Dart 
And maybe one other, I can't remember exactly who it was, mentioned that it was similar to the Vanderbilt game last year where it was like, whoa, they're down 10 points. Like, how did this really happen? Except Tulane's a hell of a lot better than Vanderbilt. I guess my point in asking that is they they took a shot in the mouth. That game at a certain point could have gotten a lot weirder than it ended up getting, and they did respond. And I'm not sure last year's team was always the most uh, apt to handle situations like that, where this team came out to their credit in the second half and played a lot better, particularly defensively. They struggled not really defensively, um, but in the second half, Tulane ran it 22 times for two yards a rush. I think they totaled 43, 44 rushing yards. Uh, the backup quarterback was 11 of 29 in the second half. Ole Miss played a lot better, particularly on the defensive side of the football in the second half and showed a little bit of resiliency there. I mean, I don't care what you think about the team's problems. 27 to three when you're down at halftime uh, to a ranked team, that's uh, that's turning on the Jets. You know, look, Michael Pratt didn't play, and that was for sure the it was the story of the early part of the game and most of the game. I guess that was the part I didn't say a second ago that I kind of skipped over, is that it started getting around the stadium I guess about 30 minutes before kickoff, 45 minutes before kickoff, that Pratt wasn't going to play. He didn't come out with the quarterbacks. And it put this glaze over the entire two-lane segment of the, the stadium from a staff standpoint to the fans. It was just really sleepy because they thought they were going to get run out of the building. If we're just being really honest, I mean, even in the press box, they're talking about the line jumping because the line goes from six and a half to 13 over the course of Saturday morning once Pratt is rumored to be out and then out um, – um, for sure after that, it it th- there was a sense that they had this huge opportunity. I wrote about it on Friday. They had sort of this six-game stretch that was defining where they are as a program, and this was the, the final boss, if you will. It was the thing that said, this isn't a bowl game. This isn't anything where you can make an excuse. This isn't a Sunbelt opponent. This is a ranked SEC team in our house right here without getting our best shot. They get our best shot. If you win, hey, 12 and 0 is on the table. I mean, Tulane went into the week going, as dumb as it is, that's up to you. But they went into the week looking at Cincinnati a couple years ago, making the playoff and going, well, if we get a win over the SEC team and we beat South Alabama and we run the table, why can't we be the fourth seed in the playoff? Again, whether it's true or not, that's what they were thinking going in. That's what Willie Fritz has used to his team. And when Pratt's banged up, it just sort of fell away because nobody thought they could keep pace with Ole Miss. Frankly, even Tulane thought Ole Miss was going to score more points than it was scoring. They just thought they might could keep up. But, look, Kai Horton did a pretty good job. He was fine in the first half. He was awful in the second half. The Goldie made some adjustments. They did some different things. Um, Fritz had done a lot in the first half to confuse Ole Miss by running a game plan that was not the game plan they had run against South Alabama the week before. So Ole Miss had to really adjust to that. Um, but I thought it was where – and it's kind of back to the beginning thought of you can take from this whatever you want to take is that Tulane as a team is a good team. But you have to believe you have to believe Tulane is a good team to go Ole Miss took a really good shot, beat a good team. You know, once Pratt was out, I think it changed so many perceptions. They weren't necessarily true. Now, look, Michael Pratt playing, and that's maybe a different ballgame because when Ole Miss goes sleepy and Harris gets hurt, assuming it all plays out the same, what if Tulane's up 24-7, to not 17-7? to What if they're up 27-7, to not 17-7? to that thing can get weird on you. Yeah, um, particularly that Ranger Ole Miss had four straight punts. The fact that they yeah, was able right. to be held at 17-7 to was a little bit of a game-changer to momentum. Thorpe. It was. So the point is, and all that, is Tulane has got some dudes. They're not bad up front on both sides. They're pretty physical. They're pretty talented. I mean, it's not SEC, but 
it was enough to where if you're rattled at all, they can give you a fight. And that's where Jackson Dart, I thought his quote was really interesting because he did this sort of unprompted. I think the question came from maybe David Eckert for the Clarion Ledgers who asked it, but essentially it was, you know, what did you learn about this after the way it went down? And I've got it here, Dart's quote. Our team in this game last year would have lost. Said he was talking with Charlie Weiss Jr., and they both agreed. It says a lot about the culture and the work and the buy-in. I think we identified things that were important that were missing last year. At times, we were front runners. When we hit adversity, we'd slow down and not get over the hump. Thought it was a really good quote. Thought it was a really honest quote. They've talked about that the whole time. Is that you know Lane talked about it in the preseason that they had to show it when adversity hit. But he kind of liked their secret sauce more this year than last year. He he, he said that from the jump, even before the uh, the season began and. I think so. I mean, look, Tulane had enough people there to not rattle you from a noise standpoint, but rattle you because you're on the road playing a good team that's got a lot of momentum, um, really good coaches. You're kind of thrown off. It's a game you're still supposed to win because when you go into that place, it's an American team against an SEC team and all that kind of stuff. And they did. They responded because I, I do think you have to give them a lot of credit for this, is that they didn't go win that game 23-20. to 20. They covered they won that game by 17, and I get that that took a Jared Ivey desperation two-lane drive that went scoop and score and all that stuff. But Caden Davis did hit the 56-yarder when they're only up seven. That was Lane Kiffin going, hey, my defense has played pretty good. My defensive backs have been damn good. DeAndre Prince has had a hell of a day. Let's just pin them deep and let's see what happens. Instead, he went, no, let's make the kick. He's got, he's got 56 in him. Let's give him a chance for 56. Because – he doesn't make that kick. They get the ball in really good territory right there to go down, potentially tie the game, and create a whole mess of problems. And instead, they simply make the kick. That takes all the wind out of it. That that iced it essentially at that point. They got the big stop on fourth down after the review. They did a lot of good things. So, yes, it was a backup quarterback. Yes, it was all that kind of stuff. But they responded in a way that made it it wasn't about survival. It was about, no, we played the way we were supposed to play, and this is what happened after that. Lane was able to go into that locker room and go, hey, you guys didn't just win. You outscored them 27-3 to past a certain point. That's what's pretty cool, and that's where they kind of can take that from there. They took the game. They didn't <laughs> let Tulane throw up on themselves. Ole Miss made the necessary plays, yeah. like you mentioned, whether it's the kick or dart improvising on that last touchdown that was a crucial one, too. Um, Michael Trigg in what was, I think, the biggest play of the game, or at least one of the two biggest plays of the game. On the defensive side, what did you think was the difference, biggest difference maker in the second half? How did you think they fared up front? I thought J.J. Pegues played a really nice game. He was really productive and was disruptive a lot. He was in the opponent's backfield a lot. But as we talked about the depth issues on the offensive side of the football or just simply having guys out, defense, they rotate a bunch of guys week one. And I know we hit on this a little bit earlier, but Week two, it looked a lot like last year. I mean, you posted the snap counts this morning. It was a lot of the defensive linemen playing a lot of snaps. We saw no Josh Harris. We saw very little of Xavier Harris, which I thought was strange. You know, you got some Aquilo Stone in there, but they didn't rotate like we thought they would. And I don't know, it, maybe it's a different answer for each guy, but what did you make of the fact that they were still kind of top-heavy, a lot of starters playing a lot of snaps up front and why they did not rotate? think they still lack some trust in some guys when it gets down to it. I mean, you know, because look, what, what, and I think that's evident for this, is there were two times yesterday where it was clear they did not trust two players, two young stars, and then they didn't play after that. And this is one offense, one defense. It's an obvious who I'm going to. Aiden Williams, 
He runs the wrong route on a pass. He's blocking downfield. Dart throws the ball. He doesn't see it. I'm not sure he gets back in the game after that. If so, it was very few snaps. On the other side, Sunterian uh, Perkins, on the very first possession, rushes the quarterback, almost gets to him, does a lot of stuff in the middle to kind of disrupt. But it was clear he did not run the correct assignment. He had made a mistake on where he was supposed to go or however that works again. I don't know what his defensive key is. But he made a couple mistakes, and he didn't come back in either outside of special teams. It felt like they were incredibly big on assignment yesterday. As long as you had the right assignment, they would kind of let everything else go. And it just it kind of came back to trust for me. I mean, you know, it's it was a sign because you'd like for a sixth, a seventh offensive lineman to get in the game a little more. You would like for more of a rotation up front on the defensive line for damn sure because that's where you have an advantage if you can really rotate those guys. Um, in the secondary, they did a little better job, but it still isn't necessarily what you thought. Now, Tennyson's been banged up. There's some things that have played into that. And then I think they're still searching at linebacker. And when you don't trust Perkins or for whatever reason you don't put him in, you're just not left with a lot of bodies. There's not much there to go to at that point. You kind of have what you have. So, yeah, I, I thought yesterday was about trust for Ole Miss defensively. I thought it was about, hey, while this is still a game, while we're coming back, these are the dudes that we're going we're gonna to count on for the right 11 to be in the right place, and we're going to play with that. Because, look, I think it was even quarterback dependent a little bit. Maybe I'm crazy, but when you've got Kyle Horton in there, just go to your assignment. Do your assignment. Make him beat you with his arm. Do the things you've got to do that really make him have to be successful. Because if he put guys in there and they blow coverages, he absolutely can hit the receiver who's running free down the field. So I, I think Golding went with, hey, we're not going to blow assignments right now. We're going to make Tulane earn this thing. And even if it's not necessarily the freshest guy or the guy with the best first step or whatever it is you want to factor into that, it's Kai Horton and we got to make sure that he has to drive the football. If Michael Pratt's in the game, as odd as this sounds, I think they might have even played more players because you're taking more chances. It's, hey, let's go get him. Let's do this. He's going to score so you can do all these different things. I think once Tulane was in that situation offensively, it was just about not making any mistakes that would give them momentum or give them some big play because you made an unforced error. I think that's an interesting theory. I think it certainly makes some sense, too. And, I, again, I wonder how much different it would have been with the Pratt piece of it because – they made it sound like that they thought uh, Pratt was going to play all week until they just started warming up. And that no matter what, you know, you think is going to happen throughout a week and they say they prepare for both or whatever. If you think one guy's going to play all week and then all of a sudden he's not in pads when they're warming up, that does change some things. And that may be a piece of it. But some of it is just perplexing to me because like. Some of it is like, I, I guess I just don't know what the hell I'm watching. I thought Xavier Harris played a great game last week. I thought he was super disruptive. I thought he showed flashes of dominance, and then he just doesn't really play a ton in that game. And I wonder if some of that's the assignment piece you're talking about or just the way. Or is some of that that Mercer was so small in one spot and they're just not seeing it in practice the same way? I don't know. Yes, exactly. Or or they have a bunch of kind of bigger bodies that do different things while on the defensive line. Was it more of – what Tulane does that that lended itself to it more. I, I don't really know. Right. Like Josh Harris is like about as typical of a nose tackle as you'll probably have super big body. Was that not something that was, uh, you know, Tulane did, or was he, he wasn't as useful against whatever Tulane did. I don't know. It could be a couple of different things. I think it's something we'll probably figure out as the season goes on, but they played a lot better in the second half. Did they, I've watched the press conferences, but I'm curious if I missed anything as far as they said what they did adjusting was in the second half, because they played a hell of a lot better. They seemed to put um, Horton in a lot more duress. He seemed a lot more rattled and they covered a hell of a lot better in the second half too. 
Yeah, they were more aggressive. Um, he, he, Lane said that. I think Isaac Ukwu both said that, too, that they they opened things up. They came after him a little more. And then they adjusted, again, to what Tulane was doing that they had not expected. I, I don't remember exactly what the schematics were, but Tulane had changed up the way they were running to do completely different styles of running game. It's a question for Pete, for Pete's pigskin preview on Thursday. But they, they did a lot of things from a schematic standpoint in the run game. They had Ole Miss off stride. And I think it took until halftime to kind of get that fixed. They didn't make a ton of adjustments until then, but a lot of it was simply changing up things to react to what Tulane was doing. That settled everybody down. They started taking more chances. They got a couple hits on on Horton. I thought he kind of locked up and froze and kind of freaked out a little bit after he got hit. And, you know, once Ole Miss got momentum, Tulane without Pratt just simply wasn't good enough offensively to, to make that charge and to, to get back. Well, you start forcing things. You realize that, hey, we can't get down the field, and suddenly Ole Miss gets a little more momentum. I just thought it snowballed. I thought in the first half, you know, look, it's kind of like baseball a little bit, is when your offense isn't scoring, you know, you start worrying about defense a little bit, and every run matters because, hey, if the pitcher leaves one up over the zone and gets hit out, that's even more runs our offense isn't scoring, and it gets in your head. I think it works for football too. And Ole Miss is so primed as an offensive team, and they're so used to seeing Ole Miss score points that – I think it can affect the defense a little bit when when that's not happening. Now, look, on those first drives, that's two games in a row. I don't know. I mean, look, Tulane, they converted three third downs. Um, Ole Miss had two opportunities to get off the field with just making normal defensive plays and didn't do it and allowed, allowed Tulane to really drive down. So that's got to be cleared up because it was almost kind of like they weren't focused. I thought Lane said that too because defense is where they have so many transfers. Lane said he felt just extra energy for no reason before the game. He felt like that the returners from last year were calmer, were a little more ready for the moment, whereas the transfers were kind of bouncing around too much and just seemed jittery. So I think maybe that played a role. But for the most part, I think that it was the offense keying a little bit, not being able to score, and the defense not really responding to that until after halftime. The trust piece of it that you're talking about, Perkins is the most surprising one to me because I just figure if you look at it, it particularly doesn't seem like they're totally sure about any of their linebackers at this point. All four guys, uh, particularly kind of the inside guys, played a, basically an equal amount of snaps, you know, within 10, 12 snaps of each other. Um, with him, though, I get it. All about assignment, whatever. But I, I, I was kind of thinking going into this game, he's so talented. You worry about speed. I think he's probably omitted from that conversation that they would let him play through some mistakes. That was the most shocking element to me that he makes a mistake and they don't really go back to him at all, particularly given what Tulane was doing early on in the running game and the sheer fact that they don't seem to love what is going on at linebacker now, or at least they're still trying to figure it out. And because he's a freshman. Don't take his confidence that he might have. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, let him make a mistake. Let him know you still love him and believe in him. And, hey, look, he's your most athletic, talented dude. There's no doubt about that. So him running around over the course of a game is probably not the worst thing in the world. I mean, he, he's probably going to find a way to just athletically make a couple plays here and there just simply because he's who he is. Right. And so that part of it was surprising to me. I still think as the year goes on, they're going to have to give him more and have to rely on him more. But maybe not. We'll see. Second half, the uh, the interesting saga of Michael Trigg at Ole Miss, from doghouse to catching the biggest touchdown of the season so far. I know that sounds kind of silly, eight quarters in, but they needed him yesterday. Uh, Kyron Heath didn't play very much. We talked about the pre-scorn thing and all this earlier, but uh, I guess you got to credit him for being on the field and you know lining upright and doing the correct thing. And you know, Dart makes a guy miss that was seemingly ad libbed a little bit, or maybe it was just the fact that Dart was thrown off by the guy coming at him as a free rusher. But he catches the biggest touchdown pass of the game, and it makes for 
a, a puzzlingly positive chapter in what's been a weird career for him at Ole Miss so far. And they're going to need him. The best version of them, they're definitely going to need him to be with it and okay. Oh, Mike Wittrig not playing yesterday. Ole Miss, I mean, I had to say maybe they lose the game, but it would have been much more complicated because he played well. I mean, I we've been quick to point out all the issues, and there's plenty of issues, and it's not like we made them up. I mean, he's a guy who we weren't sure was on the team a couple weeks ago, and then suddenly Priestcorn is needed, and it's a different deal. I mean, I, I'd heard some rumors, and maybe they weren't rumors early in the year, that – Essentially, Rig was just not. I mean, Rig Trig was just not going to play. and Was essentially going to redshirt or do something and then transfer at some point. I mean, that's kind of where things have been sitting. And instead, he's become a very vital part of this offense. He's the most all-around tight end they have available right now. Because it's not just Priestcorn. Hudson Wolf is out several weeks with his shoulder or collarbone issue, and he's at least a big kid and a talented pass catcher. Even though we haven't seen him because of injuries throughout his college career. So, Trig yesterday, especially there was the one drive. There were two plays and kind of one drive that I thought made a lot of sense and showed you what he's capable of. And what he was doing for the team is when they went down to score and cut it from, I guess, to tie it, to tie it at 17. That was Judkins' nine-yard run. Um, I thought it was Judkins' best run of the year to make the to, to score the touchdown. But prior to that, they threw a pass down the left sideline, and Trigg made a great block after the catch to spring him for like 10 or 15 more yards. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember the exact play but they kind of got something loose along the left side and Trigg made a really good block downfield. And he was, he was, he was playing to the whistle. He was doing everything kind of capable. I watched him three or four plays and he had a lot of energy and very positive ways for Ole Miss as a team standpoint. And then, yeah, he catches that pass on fourth down that, that allowed Ole Miss to take the lead later or whatever that did during that drive. I mean, it's, it was, I guess it was to put it, to put it to 27, 17 instead of 20 to 17, but he was, dynamic at moments yesterday. Um, I, I thought he played his best half of football against really period at Ole Miss because Central Arkansas is Central Arkansas, so I'm not even counting that. He was good yesterday. I, I really have zero complaints for the most part about Michael Trigg. I'm, I'm going to pull up pro football focus here in a little bit because I, I don't trust their grades. I don't like them for several reasons, but I, I do wonder what all grades they gave Trigg yesterday because I thought in every area of the game he was he was really good. And you talk about a game where it seemed like they were very committed to assignments. They go away from Aiden Williams early. I mean, he played 42 snaps. If he'd have messed something up and not gone back out there, maybe they just simply weren't willing to die with Kyron Heath out there, metaphorically, not literally. But like, if I guess my point being is just so we talk about them going away from guys once they made a mistake and it being an assignment-centric game. If he's out there 42 plays and out there at the end, then certainly he didn't miss anything, and that's been a huge piece of his his struggles at Ole Miss is just not getting lined up right. There was a moment in the spring game where Lane Kiffin was pretty exasperated about it. So maybe there's some growth happening there. Uh, Ole Miss will certainly surely be a better team for it. Really the last thing I had on this game was where the hell does this guy keep finding these kickers? So they had a freshman All-American named Caden who was pretty awesome from 50 yards plus. I think he made like 88% of his kicks. He gets suspended. They find another kid in the portal who made like 80-something percent of his kicks, was one or two from 50-plus. And then they find another kid named Caden who just comes out of nowhere and bangs home a 56-yarder to see ice the game yesterday. Whatever you think of Kiffin's recruiting, he's finding kickers everywhere. I, I don't understand this. This is – I mean, in all seriousness, this is a fascinating piece of it because you talk For about – For a guy who kickers. doesn't want to kick, he has the deepest kicking room in the country. It's it's unbelievable. It's, it's <laughs> I just assume that if Costa was still on the roster, the way he performed as a freshman, it would just be his job again after he served his suspension. But apparently he got beat out by another kid with the same name. Well, it okay, I don't – 
I could be wrong. But my my path on this that I find so amazing is I think they signed Caden Davis to be a kickoff specialist. That's what he was at Texas A&M. All he did was kickoff. He spent three years being the kickoff guy for Texas A&M and then potentially having a chance to punt. One of the reasons that Caden Davis came to campus was that, hey, he might could be the punter too. And he wasn't going to be the punter at A&M. And you see what that looks like. And, you know, it was they had Charlie Pollock and they had uh, Fraser Messine. And that, that, that that's where they are here from a punting standpoint. So Davis had a chance. But, I mean, you do the camp and you do practice and you've got preseason and he just started making kicks. I don't think anybody thought he would be overly accurate. I mean, he was he was one for four in his career at Texas A&M with field goals. He was he was 0 for 1 one year and 1 for 3 the other year. That's all he'd ever kicked at AM. His only made field goal was basically just a gift to him for being a good soldier. He kicked a 40 order against Sam Houston State in the opener for the Aggies last year when they were in a blowout. It's the only time he'd ever <laughs> kicked a field goal. And then he comes in and he, yeah, he's just he has a huge leg. I mean, he kicked That would have been good for 60 something easily. Oh, no, no, no. He kicked the hell out of it. He kicked one kickoff basically into the stands. I mean, he 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 has a monster leg, and then all of a sudden it's accurate. He's four for four on the year. He makes the one kick against Mercer. Because I I think, I mean, Lane's not frustrated. He's clearly picked Caden Davis because of his big leg, and he's hitting kicks right now. But I think Lane even thought, hey, Costa's my kicker, or especially my kicker under 48 yards. You know what I mean? Maybe that we give Davis the kick when it's the 54-yarder, but Costa's my kid, my, my kid for the normal field goal here. And I think he, maybe he's even a little flustered or mind blown by it because they split kicks against Mercer. They both kicked off. They both did extra points. Uh, I think Costa ended up having five extra points against Mercer in the opener. But it just looks like right now, yeah, he's he's been beaten out by a guy that no one really thought he would be beaten out by but has just come in and performed better. And when he gives you that huge leg and that opportunity, I was surprised a little bit. And I guess, I guess the kicking competition is over. Um, I had not seen anything to make it over. My only shock a little bit is that Costa did not kick the 27 yarder yesterday. They had a they had the chip shot 27 yarder, and I kind of thought, oh, he's still gonna rotate these guys. But when Davis kicked the 27 yarder too, I went, no, no, no. I think Caden Davis is just Ole Miss's kicker right now. Yeah, there was a part of us last week, or um Weldon and I that were trying to like maybe just throw in th- stuff at the wall and see what theory might stick was that they do the saban ass short kicker, long kicker thing. Cause you mentioned God Davis has the massive leg. But yeah, you're right. Yesterday when he kicked this chip shot field goal, it was like, all right, I guess they have a new kicker. So um well, he also doesn't know how to do anything but just kick it as hard as he can. So those short field goals are actually maybe the most impressive for me because it's 27 yards and he kicks it like it's a 50 yarder. So that thing is flying into like, like the 48 way, way over. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's no doubt on it getting there. I mean, he is he, he will never have the Chuck Knobloch problem of like tossing it over to first base because he throws it too 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 soft. No, no, no. When Kevin Davis rares up, it's it, it's a hundred percent. He's he he's whizzing that thing over there. Kevin has a history with long field goals going back to his time with the Oakland Raiders, but like on a halfway <laughs> series note, I guess if they do get to a game at the end of the year this year, maybe they're down two they're a little bit over midfield. You know, if you talk about the Hail Mary or try to run another snap or the all the all the strategy situations that come up toward the end of the game if you're down by less than three points, I guess they will have that in the bag. If they, By God, if they need to try 59 or 60 yard or just to, you know, if it's their best option to end or win a game or something at halftime, by God, they'll just run the it kid out. It might have been the worst thing that could happen to Ole Miss yesterday in a way because, yeah, you know Lane looked at that and went, hey, that was good from 65. So yep. what, what, like, what, do we, what do we got here? Like, 
if we get to the 48, do I have a chance? Can we can we, can we get it there? Like what, what's what's that look like? So that's uh that was just wild to me. I, I don't know where he keeps finding these kids. They I'm now going to be shocked if they have a kicker in a couple of years if Lane Kiffin's still here and he's bad. I'm like what happened? What, what happened to all the good ones? So good for him. Made an absolutely nails kick that would have been good from at least 10 15 yards further. Did you get to watch much football yesterday? What was kind of your intake and impressions around the SEC? The one game I didn't really watch a ton of because it was at the same time as Ole Miss's was Miami and A&M. But here it goes. This is going to start getting weird. And it wasn't even – the shocking piece of it is it wasn't even a Bobby Petrino problem. They seemingly scored a decent amount of points yesterday and did not lose that game because of offense. They don't pay Jimbo Fisher to go lose games like that against a Miami team that – Weldon is definitely not high on. He's not a big Cristobal guy. But in a half-empty, kind of soulless pro venue, I, I thought AM would win this one going away. This was the one in Neil's picks I felt the best about. And they just aren't very good. And now it's a defensive problem. So, I mean, what did you what do you make of the current state of AM? Yeah, see, I did not see any of it in real time for the most part. I was following it there late because I like making fun of Texas AM. So I was checking the score and doing different things. And look, here's what's frustrating for AM is that I've gone back and watched a little this today, this morning, and then I've, I've read a good bit. Wegman was good. Wegman was maybe close to, hey, a really A-plus gamer. I mean, he wasn't elite, but he was not the reason. He was good enough for, for them to win. They, they had a ton of yards. They scored enough points. That defense was not good. Got shredded. They made mistakes offensively. They couldn't run the football at times. It looked like a Texas A&M team that loses the games we're so used to Texas A&M losing. That is what that looked like yesterday. It was the exact script of what we're kind of used to from, from the Aggies when they don't meet potential and they don't do the things that, at this point, we expect them to do in a negative way. Um, so, no, I thought that was a gut check for AM yesterday. I think that opened up it where, no, there's no guarantee they're just the second or third team in the West or whatever. I mean, they, they're going to be scrapping with everybody else to try to get through wins here. They're good enough to get you because they are talented. You saw that what they did to LSU last year. Again, Wegman is plenty good enough, but they're sleepy. They have culture issues. Look, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's something where Jimbo has had a hard time relating to today's athlete in some ways. I just wonder about them as those expectations change, not because they went crazy on Portal, but just kind of in different, just kind of in, in general. They don't seem to handle that well as a program. Um, I thought that Mississippi State was just not very good. They beat Arkansas. I mean, they beat Arizona yesterday, but they, they forced tons of turnovers and still only won the game in overtime. Um, also, I don't know what they're doing with this white uniform state script thing on their helmet. Just wear your normal uniforms. You're not you're not flashy. That's not what you are. You're, you're a team that has a uniform and you wear it. Um, I don't know what to make of the teams that played with their food yesterday. Tennessee messing with Austin P. Missouri and Middle Tennessee, Arkansas and Kent State. I said this on the post game, and I think I'm still believing what I what I said a day later, which is, I think in the transfer portal era, it's hard to blow teams out because transfers are just this. not together. Transfers are focused on other. Like I just think when the when when the intensity is off, and you know you're going to win a game, it's hard to get that group that has not been together for a long time and just sort of has a 
God, pride is such maybe the wrong word because that's kind of Pollyanna and crap. But you know what I mean? Like they they're, they're not invested the, the same kids way that are in their second there together after and waiting for two years or three yeah. years. And a lot of times kids have been guaranteed things in the portal. And, uh, you know, beyond Ball that, states not getting the juice tinkering with different stuff and not, you know, not using blood out. But to your point, portal era, when all these guys are mercenaries, hard to get up for the small games is your point, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's what that is. So I'm not ready to just say, hey, no way. Um, it's why this week I think Ole Miss probably benefits from Georgia Tech being on the side of the helmet, even though they're not very good. Right. Versus some other team where you go, okay, great. Now I got to get ready for Ball State, and I think I'm good. Um, so I think Georgia Tech helps in that stretch, but I don't know what to make of it. I'm, I'm not going to say all those teams are dead and buried because they did that. I thought that the biggest indictments actually were on State, the way they played against Arizona, because Arizona's not a good football team. And then I do like their quarterback, though. And then um, Auburn, because Auburn might have won, but Cal tried every way imaginable to lose a to lose a football game. Auburn has barely over 200 yards total offense. They had 12 first downs. They turned the ball over four times. There was nothing about that game. Cal had basically a touchdown callback because of an inadvertent whistle at one point. I mean, it, it was it was a collection of errors for the Bears, way more than it's anything about the Tigers. Now, Auburn's defense is pretty good. Defense is pretty they good. Are. They fly around. I, I I I like them. That offense is horrid, absolutely horrid offensively for Auburn. So if you can score any points at all, you're really putting Auburn behind the sticks and making them play catch up. I don't think they can do it. I, I thought even in a win, I might have thought less about Auburn than I did anybody else yesterday, just because of what that offense looked like, and frankly, what the offense has looked like for two week, two straight weeks. Even though they had their gimme game um, last week in the opener. And then the one I left off until the end on purpose, it wasn't that Alabama lost. It was that Texas did to what Alabama, what you typically see Alabama do. Um, Texas controlled that game on the line of scrimmage. They were more physical. They bullied Alabama. They had the better quarterback. They had more big plays. Um, They weren't phased by the environment, by the crowd. Um, Steve Sarkeesian gets that whole former, former coach win thing over Saban yesterday. We'll see where the year goes. So much of this is quarterback dependent because Milrow is not one of Alabama's best quarterbacks they've had in the last 15 years. He, he He's he's very average. He can run. He can make some throws, but he makes a lot of mistakes. I saw somebody yesterday on Twitter compare him to Anthony Richardson from the standpoint of his best film pops off the page, but his worst film is some of the worst you've ever seen, and there's such a huge gap between the good and the bad. And I thought that was a really good comparison. That made a lot of sense to me for for Milrow. Um, What it says is, and I think we were seeing this a little last year, even though Alabama won a lot of the games and still ended up with a pretty good season. The shine's kind of off the rose. They don't intimidate people the same anymore. That doesn't mean they're not going to go 11-1. and Look, I don't know who they're going to beat or lose to or anything else. I'm not predicting that. But what I am predicting is that nobody just automatically sees their helmets and goes, oh, crap, I'm going to go pee down my leg and not give them an effort here. I think that's gone. I think now there's still the motivation to get them because they've been the big dog. But that fear is less. There's not the fear against Alabama anymore. That's that's not the same game at this point in 2023. I agree completely. It's it, it it's not the same feel, even just even if you're a good team going in that stadium, like Ole Miss in 2015. We all thought that team was pretty good, but it's like, man, can they actually go over and Bryant Denny and win? That's not really the same feeling anymore. 
And that was probably an undersold aspect of this game. It's just you have a really, really good quarterback on one side and a new quarterback on the other who's turnover prone in the very limited time we have seen him. And it was just the fact that Alabama got pushed around. That was very jarring to see. It Turnover issues aside, everything else, them just getting pushed around at home by a Big 12 school, soon to be SEC school, was very, yeah. very surprising to me. And so, you know, that makes you view the game a little bit differently if you're Ole Miss. I don't think now, like you said at the top, like, okay, Ole Miss is going to go in there and win the game. But Alabama's feels very gettable, and mostly it's because they don't have a magician at quarterback like they've had for the last half decade to cover up woes elsewhere, at least while they're trying to figure it out earlier in the season. How can I present this to you? A&M schedule. They get ULM next week as a get-right game. Sorry to Neil uh, for overlooking the Warhawks. Auburn at home. Arkansas and Dallas, Alabama at home at Tennessee is their next games after that. Talk about something that could go off the rails very quickly. That doesn't feel like a great situation, particularly if defense is now going to become an issue for them. Oh, that's potentially really bad. Real, real bad, real quick, like a Jimbo's out by mid-October type of thing. And that's why I thought this was such a huge game for A&M, and I thought they would win going away because I wasn't big on Miami. So I agree with you on State. I wasn't overly impressed with them either. I don't know what to make of the teams playing with their food, but – I just – I don't know. I didn't think State looked overly impressive. The Arizona's not very good. Their quarterback is. But, again, it's always first, second week of the season. Like, a team that we think is horrible ends up being fine and then vice versa. So, you, you never really know. Last thing, just what are you looking for Ole Miss this week? They're 21.5-point favorites before the things get really real. Just early thoughts about Georgia Tech and what you want to see this week as far as just learning more about this team. Yeah, I'll do that in one second. Real quick, we'll do that. It's the Alabama schedule that I find fascinating. Okay. Today, yeah, no, no, hit me with that. Alabama lost to Texas. And again, they're not going to lose all these games. That's not what sure. I'm saying. But I won't be shocked if Alabama, in, an, in a vacuum, any of these games individually, they can lose to Ole Miss. They can lose to A&M. On Absolutely. a best A&M day, they can lose. They can lose to Tennessee, and they can lose to LSU. That's I mean, th there's five. a path to like eight and four, seven and five. There is. There's absolutely now. Yeah, is it? Go are they doing it? No. But if you told me, hey, their over under is nine wins, I have a hard time going. Yep, they're going ten and two. But that's the the better way to frame it is the, the, talking about them. And as soon as I say this, they'll somehow run the table and go eleven and one. But sure, the way course, it looked whatever. to me, that piece of it seems to be out the door. That they're going to write the ship and run the table, and this turns into a Florida eight situation and all that. That that the way they looked, I am convinced enough to stop having that conversation as it pertains to Alabama. It's just kind of where they actually stand and who actually ends up winning the West. Um, I'm not having that conversation until they run the table and they beat Tennessee and they only have one loss when they go to when they play LSU at home on November fourth. Okay, that's so the only way on they this. get in the, that's the only way they get that 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 back in play. So we covered every West team. Who's the favorite in the West? If Ole Miss was healthy on offense, I would think they're the favorite today. You would not have ever even thought about that statement or said it out loud two weeks ago. No, not at all. I mean, I was debating Ole Miss third or fourth with A&M most of the preseason. That's where I was. And look, but they have a look. Look, here's the truth: they have the best quarterback of those three teams. Yep, I agree with that. Look, Daniels can outplay Dart. Daniels can be damn good. But right now, based off what I've seen this season, Dart is better than Jaden Daniels. Right now. And to be fair, I, I don't necessarily believe Ole Miss is going to contend or win the West. Yeah, that's not stretch. my point. It's two yeah, weeks yeah, yeah. in. That's not really the point. It's just an interesting way to frame the conversation after two weeks is because of what's happened to the two presumed favorites, 
who is the favorite now? Now, LSU had a bad loss early in the year last year and ended up being fine. Maybe that's it. Um, as I got an ad playing here in the background. Um, but like now the top two teams that you thought would probably be the two teams vying for it have looked so remarkably bad against the only major competition they played. It makes you think. So I don't know. Could be another wild kind of wide open year, which I thoroughly enjoyed last year. It made things a lot more fascinating. But uh, again, last thing, what are you kind of looking for for Ole Miss this week? What what, what are you eager to learn? Just for the confidence standpoint, they got to run the football. They got to get better on the offensive line. They've got to run the football. Judkins has 108 yards through two weeks. Come on, it's got it's, you got to get going. You got to get Judkins going. This team, this team doesn't contend for the West, even been healthy. This team doesn't go win nine games if Quinshawn Judkins is going to be like that. He's got to be a force for them, and that means the offensive line's got to be a force. Because I'm not even blaming Judkins. I'm blaming the offensive line for the most part. There's just simply not holes there to fit. The way his school his skill set is his skill set is it's not there, so it's that and it's look in case you're without Trey Harris for a few weeks, you've got to be creative on offense. You've got to do the things necessary to get wide receivers open. You've got to figure out what that looks like. You've got to see if you can trust another wide receiver. It's a get right game. That thankfully for them, they're two and zero when they do it. But it's about solving problems. It's about doing a lot of things you can do right here to get to the fact of everybody getting healthy. Until that happens, you've just got to be better. You've got to be better. And then I think they got to play more guys on defense. I think you got to get some of these people in the rotation. you got to get Perkins snaps, even if it doesn't look right at times. Like, there's just people who you know you're going to need later. And when you know that, you've got to use them right now, especially in blowouts or games that you're most likely going to win. I mean, it's a lot like in the baseball non-con. Just play the dude on Tuesday. Give him forward bats and see how this thing goes. If Vegas is at all right, Georgia Tech presents that opportunity. So they've got to get guys in there and and, and develop some trust. Maybe they don't have that trust right now. they got to develop that trust. So I think it's about that. But I think it's on the offense. I think the defense is starting, starting to find itself, at least for what it is. It's not going to be a top 15 national defense, but it has a chance to be solid enough to help the offense. This is on the offense. It's on the offensive lineman. It's on the run game. It's on dark continuing to make as many good decisions as possible on the wide receivers, finding ways to to to, to help and contribute beyond Jordan Watkins and, and Dayton Wade. For a game that has a 21-and-a-half-point line, I have a lot of things I'm really interested and fascinated in for this week. I think it's an incredibly interesting football game. Mine goes to the same place. It's the running game to me. Yesterday while I was waiting on Neil for the postgame show, I went and pulled the five lowest rushing outputs for Ole Miss in the Kiffin era. It's 21 Alabama. They had 78 rushing yards. That game wasn't close. 22 Mississippi State. They had 78 rushing yards. That game didn't go well. You could you could say it was close, but boy, was that an ugly one for Ole Miss. 2023 20, Tulane yesterday, 89 rushing yards, the third lowest team rushing output in the Kiffin era. That's a win. 2017 or 2022 LSU, excuse me, 117 yards. That game wasn't really close. And 21 Baylor in the uh, Sugar Bowl. 138 yards lost. It's crazy to me that two of the five lowest rushing outputs in the Kiffin era are still well over 115 yards, which is a credit to him. He's just run the football on everybody. They've yeah, led yeah. the SEC in rushing two of the three years he's been here, and we're like tied for second the other year in 21 or whichever one it was that I'm not thinking of at the time. But that's why. like that that That's not sustainable. The, the, the rushing output yesterday tells you they're going to lose that game almost every single time. And it's figuring out different ways to do it. Some of it's on Kiffin and scheme, and it's not blaming him for the problems yesterday. It's once you realize the problem, can they manufacture rushing yards? Can they do more stuff on the edge with Dayton Wade in that kind of pseudo running game? And how do they figure it out without a tight end? Like schematically is fascinating to me how they change the way they run the football now that they've identified this as an issue. 
yeah, it's a big week for Ole Miss in that way, for sure, to kind of figure this thing out. So we'll see. He is Chase Parham. I appreciate the time. Um, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure, at some point this season. But uh, glad you made it back from Nolan. One piece. Sounds good, bud. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we got Weldon in the midweek this week, some Georgia Tech-related content, and uh, a former player interview that I hope you'll enjoy as well. So stay tuned. Thanks for joining us as always, and we'll holler at you soon.